I'm Steve Pruitt, and uh, hi. <laughs> yes, all at once. Hi, Steve. Yeah, right, sure. Right. My wife and I have been here at Element for a little bit over a year. Uh, people are kind of familiar now, notice. <laughs> but anyway, um, we have enjoyed during our time here Aaron's teaching. And we just appreciate the many good things that God is doing in and through this church body. Uh, we are co-leading a gospel community group on Thursday nights. That's a shameless plug in case you're interested in joining us. Um, and we're just having a great time getting to know the many, many dedicated people who serve here at Element. It really does seem to be a mark of this church that people want to be involved and want to take part. And I think that's really great and exciting and makes me want to be a part of it. This morning, I have the privilege of sharing from God's word with you. Aaron is on vacation and we're going to be focusing this morning on John chapter 13, the first part of it. Would you join me in prayer before we begin? Father, I thank you so much for the privilege we have of opening this book in public and discussing it and applying it to our lives. We're just so grateful for that freedom and we do not take it for granted. We thank you that you have brought us to this place today and that you have a word for us. We pray that our ears will be open and our hearts will be receptive to the things you have for us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Leonard Bernstein, how many of you have heard that name? Yeah. Probably the most celebrated orchestra conductor of the 20th century was once asked a question. What is the hardest instrument to play? And without hesitation, he said, second fiddle. He said, I can always get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, now that's a problem. And yet if no one plays second, there is no harmony. Not many people in our world today aspire to be second fiddle. Not many are ready to take the secondary, the lower positions. We tend to exalt our leaders. We love those who take first place and we celebrate them. They're the ones that do the circuits on TV afterwards and all that. We honor people who have huge companies and lots of employees. There's a certain prestige to having servants. And we usually think of a servant as being uh, less noble than the one he's serving. And that's not an attitude we came up with. You can't just bash, uh, bash Western uh, society for that. This is something that goes way back all the way throughout 
human history, and it was definitely the dominant view in the first century society where Jesus walked. In fact, they actually looked down on servants a whole lot more than we do today. If you were a servant, you didn't really have much in the way of rights. You were often considered just to be someone else's property, like their dog or their uh, basket or something like that, and you were just about as disposable if you weren't serving well. But in God's kingdom, the tables get turned upside down, and when Jesus came, he let us know that in God's kingdom, it's the servant who's actually called the greatest, and the servant who's exalted in God's thinking. It's completely different from what the the society of the day was thinking. In fact, Jesus claims that if you want to be the greatest in his kingdom, what do you need to be? It's okay to talk in church. The servant of all. You need to be, if you really want to be at the top, you got to be at the bottom. You are the servant of everyone. That's what God values. Now that doesn't sit all that well with us. And I'd like to explore with you from John chapter 13 some of the reasons why we're reluctant to take the place of a servant and why we sometimes vie for position and rank and recognition in this world. But I also want to look at, I don't want us to stop there and bash on us. I would like to look at some attitudes that we can adopt that will actually free us to serve one another with joy as God would have us do. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to John chapter 13. If you haven't brought one, there are some underneath the seats in front of you probably, and you can borrow one of those, or I have it on good authority that you can also, if you don't own a Bible, you can just uh, legally steal one of those and keep it as your own, put your name in it. The first 12 chapters of John's gospel, just bringing us right up to this point, the first 12 chapters covered a full three years in the life of Jesus, 12 chapters on Three years. But in chapter 13, there's a shift. John slows his writing pace way down to a minute by minute crawl. In fact, the next six chapters cover only 24 hours. And so this should be a signal to us that God is just sort of zooming in on something that is very, very important that he doesn't want us to miss. Jesus knows that it's probably only about 24 hours before he's going to go to the cross and be dead. And so he spends his last hours comforting his disciples and actually preparing them for what lies ahead once he's going to be gone. Let's start with verse 1. We're just going to do the first five verses. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. 
The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I'm sure after your Christmas meal, you all did this same kind of thing. Can I get you some dessert, a little bit of coffee, uh, do a little washing on those dirty feet of yours? We, we just don't do that anymore. We don't really have a need for it. But, um, and, and to us, foot washing seems a little bit even strange. I mean, even your own feet, you know, you're not, we don't really like to even have people see our feet sometimes. But anyway, in this day and age when this was written, this was not a strange thing. It was not uncommon at all um, in Jerusalem. You see, the, the roads in Palestine were unpaved at this time, mostly unpaved. And so they could, during the dry season, be inches deep in dust. And then after it would rain, that dust could turn into just a sloppy muck. And as you walked from your house to your neighbor's house, even though you were pretty clean otherwise, you would arrive pretty messy. So it was the custom as guests arrived for the host to call some of the servants out and have them wash the feet of the guests so the guests would be more comfortable and probably so you weren't messing up the floor the whole time you were there. But since this particular meeting that Jesus is having with his disciples was intended to be a secret meeting, there wouldn't have been any servants there. Now Luke tells us in chapter 22 where he's writing about this occasion that the disciples have just finished an argument about who would be the greatest in Jesus's kingdom once uh, he was going to get it set up. And so you can bet that none of the disciples was ready to volunteer for foot scrubbing because it would immediately position them as lower, and they're jockeying for the high position right next to Jesus. It would be too menial for them to do it, too degrading, and uh, if you're not in the position of a slave to take that position, you can just see why these guys, everybody was just sitting around with dirty feet, I guess. You can see how menial this task was considered as you look at John the Baptist's testimony when he talks about Jesus he says I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe which of course is the first part of foot washing is to take the shoe off right well the question is then why did Jesus want to do this thing we get a hint of it um in the first three chapters, and you get a hint that most of the answer to it is going to come in verses 1 through 3, because verse 4 starts off with the word so. It says, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. So something went on first 
that prompted him to do it. And I want to take a look at, at what that was. Verse 1 starts by saying this, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Then he takes the task upon himself. So there's part of our answer right there. He wanted to show them how much he loved them. And you can see here that his love compels him to wash their feet. Love puts others first. And he loves them so much, he's willing to let go of his ego, risk a little bit of even maybe criticism for taking the place of a servant, and go for it with them. Secondly, he's also doing it to give them an example of how they should love one another. After he finished, he says in verse 15, which we're not going to get to today, but verse 15 says, Jesus says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So this thing I'm doing right here, serving you, I want you guys to do it. Take that low position. Love, according to Jesus' example, is serving another person. It's caring more for their situation than about your own interests, your own comfort. And by the way, he's even giving an example here of loving your enemies because you know who else is in the group? Judas. And he's washing Judas's feet. And he knows that Judas is about to betray him. That's incredible to me. I think a third reason for him washing their feet was that he wanted to gently rebuke them for their pride in that current argument that was going on. They were competing for higher positions, trying to figure out who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, but he shows them by his example what the greatest in the kingdom actually looks like. The greatest is not to compete for first place, but lowest or last. Still another reason why I think Jesus did this for his disciples is that he wanted to give an outward illustration of what he came to do for us spiritually. That night, think about this, that night after supper, he took off his outer garment and wrapped himself in an apron towel, the garb of a servant, and then he cleansed his disciples. And that is just exactly like what he came to do for all of us. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that Jesus set aside some of his abilities and his status as God and kind of put them on pause. He still had all of his attributes, but he kind of like hit the pause button and chose not to use them while he walked among us. And then he became, he took off that robe of glory came to earth and wrapped himself in humanity, became a servant of the human race and went all the way to the lowest place of death on a cross for us, all to serve us. So I think you can see, if you look at all of this, you can see that Jesus had it probably at least four reasons for washing the disciples' feet. To show how much he loved us, to show us, how we should love one another, 
to rebuke the disciples for that argument they were having and to give us an outward illustration of what he came to do for us spiritually. Well, at this point, I want to shift our thinking a little bit to ask a second question. How is it that Jesus, the one who deserves to be served, could bring himself to become a servant and do this uh, menial, demeaning task? What's going on in his mind that allows him to do this? What's he thinking? I mean, besides the fact that, you know, he's perfect and he's God, there was something going on that allowed him. And I think we, if we take a closer look at the passage, we find that besides that obvious reason that he's God and, of course, he's perfect and all that, um, that he also could do this because of four things that he knew. On the human level, let's take a look at that. First of all, verse 1 says, He knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So you could say he knew his time was short. He knew that it was temporary here. And I think it would help us to take the servant's role if we really understood that our time here on earth really is just a blip on the eternal screen. No matter how hard it is, it is temporary. It is not eternal. And we should be able to do something, no matter how simple it might be or dreary or humbling. It's not going to last forever. And most of us can put up with most stuff for a short while. And if you know, you know how it is, if you know there's light at the end of the tunnel, you can just kind of press on a little bit because you know there's an end to it. And I think that that's something that is uh, happening here. Then in the first part of verse 3, there's another thing that it says he knew. It says he knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So you could say he knew his position. He knew that he was the Son of the Father, the King of Kings, the Lord of all Lords, the eventual heir of everything. He knew that about himself, and that position was never going to change. He would always be that. And so he didn't need to prove his position to these guys or to anyone or even to himself because he already knew those things to be true. And so many times, see if this rings true, we're hesitant to do the more menial tasks or take the lower positions because we're not really all that secure in our position or our relationship to God. We become insecure because of how serving makes us look in the eyes of other people or even in our own eyes. But the reality is, if we have trusted Christ as our Savior, we are already children of the King, and nothing can change that. We are accepted fully because of Christ's merits, because of His perfect work, All the work for our acceptance has been done and gets imputed to us, gets placed on our account. We have now become heirs with 
Christ. And that too, it's a done deal. Peter says in his letter that our inheritance is kept in heaven for us and it can never perish, spoil, or fade away. We have it and it's done. Nothing can ever change our position before God if we have trusted Christ. And that is forever. Now in the second part of verse 3, tells us some other things Jesus knew. It says, He knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from God and was returning to God. Two more things that Jesus knew here. He, he says He knew that He came from God. In other words, you could say He knew His identity. He came from God. <laughs> that means He was the Son of God and deity Himself. God natured himself. He knew exactly who he really was, and he knew that washing someone's feet wasn't going to bump him off of that identity in any way, not going to adjust it or change it in any way. It wasn't going to change who he was. You see, the disciples are worried that by serving, they'd be perceived as being lowly and maybe less worthy, uh, less worthy of leading or being a, a big part of the kingdom and all of that. That worried them. It came too close to home. They thought that it would diminish them in some way. But Jesus was so secure in who he was that he knew that serving wasn't going to change his status or diminish him in any way whatsoever. And I think that the same can be true for us. As Christians, we need to understand that when we trusted Christ, we underwent a new birth. We were born from above. God implanted His Holy Spirit in us to stay with us forever, and we've been given a new nature. We are born again. We actually, as a result of that, belong to God now. We are born from above. That's our new country of origin. We are members of God's own family. We are citizens of his heaven. And that is our true identity now if we have placed our trust in the work that Jesus has done for us. Heaven is now our new country of origin in America, a lot of people like to say, oh, I'm Mexican-American, I'm African-American, I'm Cheeto-loving American. Or some, you know, there's just all this dash stuff. Well, we should be, I'm citizen of heaven, dash American. That's my primary identity. And whether we are the successful president of a huge company or we're collecting garbage or driving a taxi, or doing dishes, or cleaning toilets, or whatever, it won't change that status even a little bit. That never changes. And as we get this into our thinking, it brings a, a, a security that allows us to take the place of servants of one another. Next, it says something else Jesus knew, that I think is pretty important. It says, he knew he was returning to God. 
earlier in verse 1, it said he knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. So, in other words, you could say, here's another thing that was in his thinking. He knew his ultimate destiny. Very important. He knew that his service here on earth was only temporary and it wasn't going to be very long before the Father was going to exalt him, glorify him. He knew that his own glory was coming later and it, he, he, he knew that it was going to happen and nothing was going to change that. And so he was willing to wait for that glory to come in the Father's timing. Here's the point. People who aren't sure they're going to heaven often need to get prestige and power now before it's too late. They need to have others look up to them. They need to be noticed when they do good things. They need that approval because they don't have the assurance that they've actually been approved eternally by God and that they're going to be glorified and noticed later. But we who are Christians don't need to worry about those things. We know that we are actually headed for heaven where everything that has been wrong is made right, where every unnoticed thing that we did here will be noticed in heaven, we know that we don't deserve it, but we know that because of God's grace, he's promised that to us. And that frees us up to serve one another. Just a few weeks ago, um, there was the mass shooting at the borderline uh, down in Thousand Oaks, and all those people were killed. Um, but during that tragedy a young man named Matt Winterstrom helped to save upwards of 30 people in the middle of that shooting. When he was interviewed later, the reporter said, so your instinct, Matt, was not just to run and get out of there yourself, but to help the others who were still also inside. Matt said something I think is profound. He said, these people... And he's just winging it. He's, this is not a prepared statement. These people that, were, that we were here with, this is our family. And so it's not something where you just get out of there and fend for yourself. It's what can I do to protect as many of my friends as possible because my life is taken care of. I know where I'm going when I die. So to give my friends and my family the chance to live another day, I want nothing more than that. Did any of you catch that in that interview? I was astounded. Here is a guy, and that I know where I'm going when I die. That's kind of code speak for Christians. Like, this guy, he, he knows where he's headed, and that's what freed him up to serve others and get them out. He was going out. He took one person out that was injured, and he went back in and kept taking more people out. This is just a young guy probably in his early 20s. And because of that security that he had about his own destiny, he was able to worry about other people's. Isn't that astounding? It's great. And I'll tell you, if we are secure in our relationship to Christ, 
we won't need to be focused on looking out for number one. It's really a big deal now to have the me time and focus on my happiness and, and all of that. That's just so prevalent in our culture. But if we are secure in our relationship with Christ, we won't need to be focused on that. We won't need to be first in line. We won't need the biggest piece of pie at the table, the nicest car, or the fanciest home. We won't need the best job in the office. We won't need even to have our fair share. We won't even need to be noticed when we do something for others. I I have this thing where uh, sometimes Sue might forget something, and I know I do it too, and, and I'll maybe put something away. And I have this thing where I think, she probably won't even know that I'm doing this for her unless I tell her. So if I'm putting socks away, I might want one sock hanging out a little bit so at least she knows, sees my tracks or something, you know. But I have to do this exercise where I realize, no, I need to keep my mouth shut and just trust that God sees in what I do. And it doesn't matter if anybody else notices it. And I'm still working on that. I'm not batting a thousand at that one yet. But we want to be noticed. And we don't have to be if we're secure in our relationship with Christ because we know that he notices us. If you're a housewife and you're secure in your relationship with Christ, you won't feel like you're less of a person if you decide to stay home and serve your husband and your kids, or if you have to work outside of the family. You won't feel like you're less of a a mom or a wife because of those things because you're secure in your relationship. If you're a husband and you're secure in your relationship with Christ, you won't feel diminished as a man by doing the dishes or ironing or doing the laundry. You can even lose an argument without feeling like you threw down your man card and uh, you just... Um, you're not diminished by that. Another one I'm working on. So many times we feel like there's so much at stake that we refuse to let go of those kinds of things. But the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. If we're having trouble in these areas of serving others and maybe not only doing it if we're going to get credit for it or whatever, that is a symptom that we might need to work on our relationship with Christ. Because it's only as we're solidly grounded in that relationship that we're free to actually let go of the need to be served and we're free to turn around and serve others like Jesus did. He was secure enough to serve. He knew who he was, where he was going, and because he did, he could give himself completely to each of us, and it is only as we become secure in Him that we're able to give ourselves to each other as servants, and we're able to stop 
trying to prove to each other how important we are, how smart we are, how successful we are, how worthy we are, how spiritual we are, or how humble we are. Now, if you're here today and you're not sure that you actually are a part of God's family, a lot of this message is to those who know that already. But if you're here today and you're not sure where you are headed when you die, if you're insecure about your future beyond the grave, then the starting place to find your security is not by making claims to yourself or to others about how great you are. It's not about proving your worth to others or to yourself or to your God. The starting place is where you actually humble yourself before God and you admit that you fall short of his holy standards and that you can't save yourself. You can't make yourself worthy. And then when you're in that position, then when you listen to the great news that we call the gospel, the gospel means good news, that Jesus has come and he has bought your pardon and paid the penalty for your sins, it is so freeing to know that your eternity has been taken care of, that your debt has been paid. And what you do at that point when you hear that news is you transfer your trust from trusting in yourself to trusting in the work of another on your behalf, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for your sin. Jesus said in John 5, 24, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into condemnation but has already passed from death to life. That is a promise. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your sin bearer, your savior, you have eternal life. And that's the beginning of your security that then frees you to serve others. And I would encourage you, if you have not done that already, put your trust in Christ, then that you don't waste any time and you do so today. And if you need help on that or clarification, Talk to me. Talk to the um, deacons that are going to be in the back and they'll be happy to walk you through that and make sure that you understand um, where your security for eternity and for today comes from. Jason is going to come up and uh, lead us in worship. And this is actually a perfect opportunity for us to refresh our thinking about the source of our security One of the great things that reminds us of the security that we have in Christ is the celebration of communion that we do every week. Communion actually symbolizes the death of Jesus, and without his death, there could be no security for us now or in the future. The broken bread reminds us that Jesus stepped between us and the wrath of God coming at us and he absorbed that wrath in his own body on the tree uh, for us. And his, the juice reminds us that his blood was shed as the price of our redemption and he has paid our penalty with his own 
precious blood. We have been bought with a price, secured, and guaranteed eternal life through faith in Jesus, all because he paid the penalty for our sin. And today, as you take communion um, here at the tables or at the two back tables, um, how about just making a, a fresh declaration to yourself and before God and thank him for your salvation from sin and your security now and your guarantee of eternity with him. Let's pray together. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful work that Jesus has done for us. The fact that he has bought our pardon is astounding, that he has paid the debt of our sin and that we didn't deserve it at all, but he went to the cross for us. What an amazing thing. Today we are grateful for that, and we pray, Lord, that you'll work those truths so deeply into our hearts that we'll be freed up to serve one another as you would have us to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.